The teaching for this evening comes from 2 Timothy 1, 13-18. This is God's word. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me and the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Anis and Aniferous, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered to Ephesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's good to be with you this evening. And it's been a long time since we've been in Second Timothy. Several months now. So, but we're back again, and I want to give you a little bit because of that, a reminder of where we've been and the context of what the verses preceding this section we're looking at tonight um, we're talking about. And that's simply that Paul is calling Timothy a servant to, to be spurred on to carry out the work of ministry. And Paul is at the end of his life and his ministry most likely, and he is writing to his friend and his younger helper that he would be spurred on, that he would carry on the work and that he would be empowered and encouraged to continue forth. And how he does that in the verses right before this is he goes on this very long description of the gospel where he says that Christ saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, and this is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. So in a sense, what we have there is Paul is talking about the gospel. He is talking about a new life that came from Jesus that is not the result of Paul's works, but is completely the result of Christ's gift to him. However, in this section we're going to look at tonight, he turns it on Timothy, and we get this string of commands that he gives to them. So the the verses before this were were the good news of the gospel, And what we're looking at tonight are the commands and what he calls Timothy to do with it. And central to this is this command to guard the deposit. And that's essentially what he is telling Timothy is that he has been the recipient of faith in Christ. That he has been given the good news of the gospel and he's come to understand it. And the Holy Spirit has moved into his life and he now belongs to Christ and he's been given this holy calling. However, what Paul is telling him is that this deposit, that this faith that Timothy has been um, a beneficiary of and that he is called to preach, that he has been entrusted with it and that Paul's time is going. However, Timothy, he's encouraging him that he would take up his call and that he would put in the time and an effort that he would guard it and that he would see it as unstained and that he would carry out his calling in a way that fits it. And I just, as we start out here, I want to confess, this is, this is a challenging passage just to, to study through and to reflect on this week. Because in a sense, when I think about this, it just sounds like hard work. 
I mean, I'm tired, and I go through the week, and we're just trying to get everybody everywhere, wherever they want to go. And then just to think about these commands of being entrusted with the gospel, it sounds like a lot of effort, and in a lot of ways that it is. But I want to look at what this means. I think we're going to find some good news along the way. But what it reminded me of when I was thinking about this was I remember eating at Red Lobster a long time ago back when I was in Anderson, and there was this older gentleman, they were talking about work, um, and he said, you know the difference between a manager and employee is? I said, no, what's the difference between a manager and an employee? And he said, the manager will be the one who's over there sweeping the floor, and the employee is going to be the one sitting back behind the desk. I know that many of you here, some of you run small businesses, and some of you are in management and I know all of your employees, I've been both in my time, and I know that is absolutely true. Um, and my wife, you know, they started a coffee shop with her family back in South Carolina as well. And we, very early on in our relationship, we talked about this, this phenomenon that the manager who has been entrusted with the work of the company, that they're motivated by something different. Like, as employees, we're just motivated largely to take a paycheck and get what we need and to do as absolutely little as possible so that we can go home and do what we really wanted to do. However, it's a little bit different for a manager. The manager has something invested in it. They've been entrusted with the good of the company. And so their actions look a little bit different. They'll do things that are outside of just the checklist for the sake of the company. They pick up the company ideals. And the success of the company itself provides motivation that they have. In a lot of ways, this kind of reflects what Paul is calling Timothy to do. He's telling Timothy that, you know, my time is moving on and I want you to go. And I want you to take ownership of this, what has been entrusted to you. And I want you to serve it and I want you to carry forth. And is this that I honestly find very tiring to listen to and to think about. But as he says this, and essentially this is the command to take ownership of Timothy's walk of faith and what it looked like in his moment. And I know that we're not all Timothy and we're not all called to oversee a church, but we are all called in the gospel. And we all have a call to live it out and to learn about it and to apply it into our lives and our situations where we have it, where God has put us. And what would this look like and how would we do it? And I think... There are three points here which you can follow in your outline that what this looks like, taking up ownership of our walk of faith, it looks like a general experience with the gospel itself. It looks like a participation in the expansion of the gospel. And it also looks like a hope of expectation for what the gospel offers in the end. And I think as we march through this and we look at it, then it's going to become the how question is to become clear. As we look at each of these sections and we look at, look at what they mean and we look at what the gospel says in the midst of them. So first, let's look at verse 13. The first verse we have here in the experience of the gospel is these commands to follow the pattern is the first thing that, that Paul calls Timothy to do. It's essentially he's calling him to a genuine experience of the gospel for himself. And I just want to say, when I use this word experience, I'm not talking about experientialism. That what Paul is calling him to do is to have a dramatic experience where he feels a lot of feelings and he gets excited you know, in and of himself, although those not, might not be bad, but that's not what the truth is based on. What he's calling him to do 
is to reflect on and evaluate what the gospel means to him as a person. That there's a genuine experience that the gospel applies to him, and it's not just something for other people. So look at these words, and he says, follow the pattern in verse 13. This word pattern, there's been a little bit of debate about it, and I want to skip most of the details, but essentially, some scholars will debate that whether this means the fact that it's a pattern, is this something that Timothy was supposed to pick up and to develop further along the way, or apply further, or is this an actual standard that Timothy was to live up to? Like, is he supposed to adhere to the letter of what Paul said, or is he supposed to take what Paul said and to see it grow and see it expand? And I think that as we go through this letter, that these are very particular words that he calls them, that he's calling Timothy to follow. He's calling, telling him to follow the words that Paul taught him. So there's an element that what he is, this pattern, are the actual words, it's the actual set of teaching that Paul has been, as his pupil, he's been giving him all along the way. And if we look through this letter, there are several examples of false teaching that Paul is warning Timothy against. So I think there is an element about this that we have to see as important, is that there really only is one gospel. That there is a set of teaching that Christ made known in his death and resurrection and was revealed to Paul and commissioned Paul to go preach. And that it's not something to change. That there is one gospel and there are false gospels. However, this word follow... It, it car- this is a really good translation of the word, but it, it's kind of the action that it's describing is that it's following with the whole person. That it's like Timothy is supposed to take the pattern of the words that Paul taught and he's supposed to incorporate them into his life as if it, it's his own pattern. It's like, own the pattern and be the pattern of this gospel that I've taught to you. So that as Timothy goes out and ministers, his calling is going to look a little bit different from Paul's. It's not going to be exactly the same. However, that he is supposed to be so ingrained with the pattern of what the gospel means that everywhere he goes, that he's able to teach and he's supposed to communicate the truth. It's kind of like Paul is kicking Timothy out of his house like he's growing up. So he's like, I've taught you everything that I have to taught you and now it's time for you to go out. And to take what I've learned and you're supposed to make your way. But based on this pattern of knowing, but what I, what I want, where I want to go is that when Paul calls him this, that the important matter of it is that the pattern that Paul is pointing Timothy to is not actually the pattern of Paul himself, it's the pattern of Jesus and the faith and love that he has experienced in him. And interestingly, in 1 Timothy 1, verse 16, if we want to ask what this means, what is this pattern, and what are these healthy words that he's been teaching, that Paul actually says, uses the same word, where he says, But I have received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his his perfect patience as an example, or as a pattern, to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. So what, this is something that is extremely significant. He's telling Timothy to own this pattern, but what the pattern of the gospel is, is not something that, that Timothy is supposed to earn. It's not something that Timothy is supposed to create. It is something that Timothy is supposed to know as a sinner. Paul is calling Timothy to know that just as Paul 
was the chief of sinners and in his lowest point met Jesus and heard the words and knew the truth of the gospel and the grace that Christ had for him, that this is what he wants for Timothy as well. Paul wants Timothy to know what it means to be a sinner and to experience the grace of Jesus Christ. And from that point, Timothy knows exactly where to point anybody else he comes in contact with along the way. He knows where the good water is. He knows where the good news is. He knows where the grace is that is found in Jesus for himself. You know, I thought, as I thought about this, it made me think that when I was in seventh grade, I, being young and immature, I figured out this way that I could go a long period of time without actually doing math in school. And it's kind of stupid because I actually put more energy into this scheme than I would have if I had just done the math. But I hated math. I figured it out, and it was going well for a while. Um, But as time went on, I kind of started to notice that I wasn't actually learning math like the other kids were learning math. And I had to pretend more and more and more that I knew math And it took more and more and more and more work in order to cover my tracks and to make sure I didn't get caught. And so the result was I was completely miserable. I mean, more and more and more of my waking moments were consumed with anxiety over what is going to happen to me. Like, am I going to get caught? And, you know, what's it it clued in pretty quickly that eventually I'm going to have to learn math and, you know, fix this situation. Because, you know, there's things like tests and stuff that come along, and it's kind of hard to hide. But one day, it, it just, I became so overwhelmed that I ended up calling my mom and telling her that, look, I can't take this anymore. I've been doing this. I'm consumed with guilt. My life is miserable. You know, I need help. And I very distinctly remember the day afterwards. I mean, it was hard. And there was a lot of work that had to be done to make up like there were consequences. But I literally went in the backyard and I threw the tennis ball up against a tree and caught it back to me. And I just looked around just at this feeling of freedom. And like there was nothing left anymore that could condemn. There was nothing left anymore that anybody could find out that would ruin me. Well, I distinctly remember this moment. It's one of the most free I have ever found. Free, most freeing moments that I've ever experienced in my life. And what Paul is similar to what Paul is calling Timothy to is that kind of freedom. Just like Paul is the chief of sinners who is actually per, persecuting Christians, that Paul experienced the complete forgiveness that he had earned, that of the wrath that he had earned before God. You know, this is, this is the truth of the gospel, that there is no other gospel, there is no other place where it starts than with us when, we're, when we are sinners experiencing the mercy of Christ and the freedom that entails in there. And it's from this point, it is amazing how much more freedom we have and the ownership and a zeal to find joy in our faith and even communicate it to others when we know that freedom. 
where even the darkest things about ourselves that we don't want anybody else to know about, that when we take ownership of that and compare them to the promises we have, that when Christ took not just most of it, not just a little, but every little bit of it to the cross, and so that we can stand before him in just the amount of righteousness that Christ himself earned. That's tremendous freedom, and that's the experience of the gospel to know that. You know, this can apply to us in several ways. I think a lot of us in here probably have things that we're not very proud of that burden us down, that consume our thoughts, that we're afraid of other people finding out about, and we wonder whether the grace that is in Jesus is enough. And this gospel, these healthy words that Paul preached, say that there is nothing that is too much for the grace of Christ. Some of us are consumed by things like how much other people think about us. Like we have to, just like me trying to keep up with all the other kids and pretend like I knew math, it's like we have to keep up appearances in front of other people, but we know that in real life, then we're two people in one. You know, we've just spent the entire last half hour trying to drag the kids out the door, trying to get, you know, in a scream, you know, of sound and anger and what have you, and then we show up and, you know, have a pretty face and what have you to try to fit in with everybody else. You know, this is very draining, especially when there's freedom that's offered in Jesus. This is the experience of the gospel, and this is where it always starts. Any gospel on self-effort that starts in anywhere other than we are sinners who have been forgiven by Jesus is not a true gospel. And that's good news for us, I think. But if we were to stop here, we would have a lot of good news for ourselves. But if we look at the words in this passage, that pers- this is personal experience of freedom, these healthy words that Paul preaches that are in the faith and love in Jesus Christ, then like, we would have to skip large sections. Like, that's not it. Paul actually, that, what he's communicating here is a lot of action. He's communicating that there is something from that point from that gospel, from that rude experience of God's grace, that it should compel us to. I mean, if you back up in verse 12, Paul's response to the gospel was that he would suffer. I mean, that he was called and he experienced the grace of God and that God put him, called him to travel to bring the gospel to to the Gentiles, to be persecuted um, for doing so. That was Paul's calling. That's what God asked him to do. In Timothy, it's a little bit different, but there's, there's an action here, too, that Paul is calling Timothy to oversee this church in Ephesus, and that Timothy, is, he traveled around with Paul, but at least for the time being, he's called to actively work in shepherding this church in Ephesus, and so there's an action. And he also, you might, we might find these verses a little bit curious in 15 to 18, he uses this example of a man named Onesiphorus, and how he refreshed and encouraged Paul that Onesiphorus was actually spurred into action, that he served Paul. He could have just stayed, you know, in a, in a comfortable place and reveled in, you know, the grace and the gospel that meant for him, but he didn't do that. He took that and he actually took action from it and served Paul. And so I think what we see here is that Paul is encouraging Timothy is that there is actually ownership of the gospel is ownership of its expansion as well. When I say expansion, I don't just mean that preaching the gospel, taking the gospel out to all nations, which it certainly includes that. 
but also just that the effect that the gospel has on us, the mercy that we find in Christ and the encouragement we find in Him, would actually turn in and be, affect other people as well. So that its effect is expanded. It, it doesn't just stay with us. That we are not the end of the gospel, but we are entrusted with the gospel that it would go out and that the good news would be brought to others as well. But this kind of leads us to ask a question that, you know, I think this is what, at least to me, sounds tiring. You know, I would rather, you know, stay at home often. I would rather not volunteer for stuff. I would rather just go sit on a boat in a pond in the evening all by myself with quiet and so that my life is undisturbed and I don't have to put forth any energy. But is this... Is this expansion, is this something that is added on to the gospel, that's a burden, or is it actually something that's integrally part of the gospel itself? In thinking about this, I just want us to zoom out a little bit. And first, if we look all the way back, which you don't have it printed in your bulletin, in verse 9, where one of the first things was when Paul describes this calling is that he's talking about Christ who saved us and called us to a holy calling. And so there's this active element. It's like, it's not just the absence of purpose. It's like it's a new purpose. And all of this is based on Christ's resurrection, which shows us not only, you know, in his death showcases forth the need, you know, the sin that we have, what it took for him to take care of it. His resurrection shows us that there's new life. There's a new purpose. There's new life There's a hope of a new life that's coming when all things will be made new. But there's also this promise that even now that we can participate as Christians belonging to Christ in this new life. And what does it look like? And so I just want to reflect a little bit on the gospel. Let me give you a few examples. And I, at times, think of all three of these things. But there's one option. I think a lot of times we think of the gospel as this. That Christ, the salvation that we have from Christ paid my debt on the cross, and he removed God's wrath. So now, everything is peachy for me. You know, I don't have to worry about God's wrath anymore. And that's certainly an element. It is not less than that. However, what this is kind of saying is that the only real problem that I have here is that God was upset at what I was doing. It's like if God would just not be upset about those things, then, you know, we all could be happy and move on. You know, I can have, I can, you know, pursue my own comfort. I can live life, my own life undisturbed, and my eternal destiny is secure. But that would kind of be like this. It would kind of be like saying, you know, if there was a young man who goes out and he moves out of his house for the first time and he, you know, is in school and rents an apartment and just you know, lets it loose in life, runs up all his credit cards, is about to get kicked out of school, wild partying all the time, destroys his landlord's apartment, and his landlord comes to him and says, look, you know, this can't happen. You know, I should kick you out. However, I'll have mercy on you, and I will allow you to stay. I'll fix the apartment. I'll pay off your credit cards, reinstate you in school. And then the guy responds like, Okay, good. My, I mean, I really don't see that there's a problem. I mean, my life was going just fine the way that it was. I mean, I was having a lot of fun. I don't see any consequences, you know, in anything I was doing. You know, thank you. I'm glad that you're not mad at me. And whatever it takes for you to stay off my back, 
I'm good, and I'll just kind of go about my life. Yeah, I think we can think about the gospel that way, but I also think that we would, that we would all agree that that's, that's not quite the full picture. And sometimes we think about this as well. We say that, you know, the salvation I have from Christ, it, He not only secures my eternal destiny, but, you know, I kind of see that my actions have some consequences, and He bails me out and promises that, you know, these, all of these consequences will be made new. And that would be kind of like if we take the example and have the same story. That young man goes off, destroys all stuff, you know, he's in deep trouble, and the landlord comes to him and offers to bail him out, and he says, you know, I understand, this is bad, I'm sorry, I know that you have to take care of this apartment, you know, I've wrecked it up, it's my fault that I've actually inconvenienced you, you know, my parents are worried about me, but I'm very appreciative that you bailed me out. So now there are no more consequences, and I'm just good to go. You know, I can do whatever. And I think that's like, that's an element of the gospel too, that the gospel it gives us a new eternal destiny, and it does take care of the actual consequences of our sin, but it's actually more than that. And the gospel is a little bit more like this. We take the same situation. It's a young man, rents an apartment, lives it up, destroying his life, going nowhere. Um, the landlord comes to him and says, look, you know, you are basically headed for utter destruction and you don't see it. And out of compassion and love for you, I'm going to bail you out. But what I want you to do is I want you to come with me and we're going to go drive around the neighborhood. And so he takes him around the neighborhood. He puts him in the car and drives him around, and, the, and he shows the young man the state of the place that he lives in. And he sees here's another house. Party is raging. Everybody's having fun. And down the street, there's one in a little bit more of an advanced state. And then there are people coming out of it, stumbling out of it. And then they get to the end, and houses are falling down. And it's like he's got eyes that are starting to open. And he says, oh, my goodness. The way that I am living, I am actually headed for death, and I have no way out. Just like my friends and everybody around me, there is a radical problem here with me. But then the landlord says, look, not only am I going to bail you out, I paid your credit cards out of my own money. I paid for your apartment. I paid to have it fixed. I've talked to the school, I've reinstated you, all of your problems are going away. However, you're also going to come with me. And we are going to go, and I'm going to set you up in the office right next to me. And you are going to assist me, and I'm going to be with you. And you are not only going to learn the pleasure of being debt-free and having none of this that you're worried about and that you see hanging over you, but you're also going to experience the satisfaction of what it's like to live and to work and the responsibility and the fruit that comes from it, but also we are going to go, I'm going to redevelop this entire neighborhood, this entire slum where you were living, and I'm going to bring you with me, and you're going to see it. It's like This is more the full orb picture of the gospel. That Christ not only pays for the damage that we got ourselves into, but he also, through his resurrection, gives us a new life and a new relationship 
and a new way to have our being with hope of a future. But he also gives us a new calling. That Christ not only stopped with his work for us, but that he is actually making all things new, even now. And that we are now a part of that. We are a part of the family. We belong to him. And that he actually is his delight that he would include us in this work. And this is the promise we have of the resurrection. The promise of the resurrection is new life, that all things that would be made new. And that is an encouragement that we actually can participate and do good and to be excited about the expansion of the gospel while going out because it's like holding on to hope that this promise of the resurrection is true. This is a real thing that Christ is working right now for everything. So in that way, when we start to see that and we start to see you know, the depths of our action but the hope that we have in this new life that's offered in Christ, all of a sudden, then not being a part of this, not wanting ownership, it starts to sound a little bit more silly. And the part of us that we understand this life in Christ, that the thought of being in there and being able to join and participate is about the best news that we could get. That it is our pleasure to see Christ work and to see Christ make all things new. And that's our hope. But there is one last point and one last little bit of words I want to I show you in this, these two words. Not only is, that, is it that experience and that expansion, but very, very quickly... He says two fantastic words to Onesiphorus, or about Onesiphorus. When he talks to Onesiphorus, he talks. To, he says that this work that he did, he didn't just take the, his gospel experience for himself. He expanded it out to influence and affect Paul as well, and served him. And Paul says that may the Lord grant mercy to him on that day. And that's the expectation that we have in the gospel. That there is a day that's coming that Christ actually went ahead of us. Christ, all the work that he calls us to, he has already done and he has already accomplished it. And now he sits at the right hand of the Father in full glory and is waiting for us at the end. It's kind of like this. I'll leave you with one more story. I used to run the anchor leg on a 4 by 400 meter relay in high school. And... It's probably about the worst pain you can feel in your life. I don't know if you've ever run one full lap around a track as fast as you can. But you're in a team, and you're all excited starting out. And you know the other three guys, they go, and you finally get the baton, and you're going, and you're running. And you round the first turn, and it's exciting, and you're pumped. And then you get into the middle of the back straightaway, and you look around, and you think, oh, my gosh. I have an entire half of a track left to run, and I'm out of energy. Like, I'm in no man's land. So you push on, and you keep going, and you get around the last leg, or around the last curve, and you feel like you're about to die. And then finally, you round the last curve, and look up, and there is everybody that went ahead of you who is standing there, and they're jumping up and down, and they are excited, and they are urging you to come. And all of a sudden, it's like the pain just disappears and the adrenaline kicks in and you just can't wait. That's a wonderful feeling. But that is nothing compared to what we have waiting for us. 
that Christ, who has already assured the victory, who has already died and who has already come to life, the first fruit of this life is to come, and who's sitting at the right hand of the Father and he's waiting to embrace you and me at the end. That's a great hope. So this week, as we go home, then I think this is worthy of reflection that, you know, what is it? that we would take ownership of, is it really worth it? Is it really worth the effort? And I think that when we experience the gospel for ourselves, we know what it means to be sinners who receive grace in Christ. And we see the hope of life that comes with the gospel expansion going out. That it would push back the darkness and it would bring light. And when we see our Savior waiting for us at the end in anticipation and expectation of us joining in at the end. I think that's good news. I think that's something that's worth the effort and sticking it out and persevering. Would you pray with me? Dear Father, I just ask that you would help us. That all these things that we forget throughout the week and we grow tired and we become consumed with ourselves and our own needs and we just miss the joy of the good news that you have given us. I pray that you would bring it to light, that you would convict us of our sin, but that we would see the hope that we have in you, and that you would spur us into action, and that you would revive our souls, that we would be excited about what you have in store for us. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.